0: The film, uh, American History X, was a film uh, based and shot here in our very own Venice Beach, not too far from here. But it's a film which tells the story of hostility. Hostility of two sides, of a very wide chasm. It's a very grave film about differences and division. But if you've seen the movie... Or if you know the movie, you know more than anything it tells of reconciliation and redemption. It talks about enemies reconciling that chasm. And the crux in the very, very dark film is where Edward Norton's character, a a neo-Nazi convict skinhead murderer, befriends a black man as they attend to their prison duties. And we... As viewers, watch this horrific tension just ease. And all the shallow differences that once divided them washed away. So my friends, tonight, that tension, that chasm, is here tonight with an Acts chapter 10. There's a wall between our two main characters tonight, and the Bible calls it a dividing wall of hostility. And today, we witness those walls fall, similar to how they did in American History X. And with that, reconciliation and redemption, salvation, unity, nearness, and brotherhood is amplified tonight. Now, I think the word hostility is, uh, I think it's a pretty good word to describe what will be seen in Acts chapter 10. It's a word that encapsulates a warfare-like condition, an Attitude, enmity, and very very simply unfriendliness. So let me ask, is there anybody here tonight who is in a state of hostility? In a current state of hostility. If I'm getting to know somebody, the question I love to ask them, the question I love to ask them is, if you could punch one person in the face, who would it be? I love to ask this question to people because their answer is very revealing, right? Their answer would be very revealing. More often than not, they say, Casey. But that's, that's besides the point. But in all seriousness, that's stupid. But in all seriousness, that's a stupid joke. But all, uh, If we could be serious, but is there anybody that you maybe have hostility for? And not just an individual, but perhaps a person or a people group. I was talking to an individual not too long ago who muttered the words... You wouldn't like what I would do to the Dallas police behind closed doors. There's great hostility in our nation and beyond these passing days. And due to circumstances, we are an ever-increasing hostile society and people. And what's crazy is this exists outside of the church, yes, but it too exists within the church. Within the midst of God's people, just as we'll see in our verses tonight. See, Luke, the author of Acts, writes one of the most, and hear me, one of the most pivotal chapters in church history. Acts chapter 10 is one of the most pivotal chapters in church history. It's so important that what occurs is told twice in back to back chapters. And it doesn't come by way of tongues of fire, earthquakes, or mighty rushing wind. It's simply in this account shows us two representative men shaking hands for the first time. Which may not seem like a lot, but if we think about our current state in this country, a shaking of hands or a meal between parties would be astronomical. And as we'll see in Acts, it results in, this shaking of hand results in the entire faith of Christianity. Hundreds of Thousands of years of tradition and rituals, and I would go as far to say mankind all change eternally from what we're about to read. So, as we've talked about it a lot tonight already, we've talked about a dividing wall, about hostility. So the next natural question would be, okay, who's hostile? The natural question would be, okay, what does the wall divide? Well, on one side, we have those who are Jewish, On the other side of the wall, we have those who are Gentiles. Now, if you are curious about the Christian faith, or if you are curious about the Bible, this is crucial. This is big. In Acts chapter 10, representing the Gentiles, is a man named Cornelius. Look at verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to to the people and prayed continually to God. And about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who was called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. Verse 7, when the angel spoke to him, he had departed. He called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So we have an angel, a created messenger of God, come and motivate Cornelius the Gentile, telling him everything you once knew is about to be undone. Preparing him that everything you know is about to be undone. So let's look again. Corn on the cob, that would have been my nickname for him. He's telling him, Cornelius, the God of the universe has heard you. He's heard you. Be prepared. Buckle up. Now for the most part, this might, as we get into this, be a little bit confusing. Confusing. Because most of us are not of Jewish descent and live here in California in 2016. This is mostly a room full of Gentiles. Gentile simply meaning somebody who's not Jewish. Now, hear me, what I'm about to say does not represent every Jewish man and woman. But scripturally and historically, the divide of those who are Jewish and of those who are Gentiles is hostile. Racism. There was historically an immense contempt for Gentiles. To the majority of Jewish men and women, Gentiles were dogs. They were pagans, godless, garbage, rats, and the damned. It was once infamously said that the Gentiles were created by God to fuel the fires of hell. Collective Church, this was true separation. To really make sure we understand the separation, just some small examples. If a Gentile woman was pregnant, a soon-to-be mother, as we have so many in here today, if she was in the worst of conditions and in dire need of help, as Jewish descent, you would be advised not to help her so that you would not be responsible for bringing in another Gentile into this world even goes as far as milk. If your milk was drawn by Gentile hands, you would not be allowed to drink it because that means you are unclean as well. So you had to know even where your milk came from and that went all the way to utensils, to whatever else. Now, the Gentiles have some blame as well history tells us that they would have been treated and seen the Jewish community as unsociable. They, were, they thought of them as thieves and stuck up because they wouldn't eat certain foods or the Jewish people would not um, even eat with certain people. And certainly the last thing you would ever, 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 hear me out now, ever do is enter, as a Jewish man or Jewish woman, is enter the home of a Gentile and eat with them. Ever a meal around your dining room table at that time had such outrageous significance, social significance, that the association, the acceptance alone. And yet, this is exactly, this is exactly what Peter is being told he must do. Look at verse 9. The next day. As they were on their journey and approaching uh, the city, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. It's about 12 p.m. And he became hungry. He wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles, birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do do not call common. And verse 16, this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So on one side we have the Gentile Cornelius, but then to represent the Jewish side, we have a man we've all become quite familiar with, the Peter. The ever-famous leader, apostle, lovable, extremely vocal, Peter. And Peter just fell into a trance, meaning Peter was outside of himself, and it was brought about by God himself, so all of his thoughts in that moment would have been wholly suspended. And in this trance, get this, in this trance, Peter has a dream. And I was thinking about it. Honestly, his dream is a vegan's nightmare, right? (laughs) Think about it. It's this massive sheet with all kinds of animals. Notice, too, the vision comes when Peter is starving. Peter is hungry. So he's mentally and spiritually and physically all over the place right now. So there's this giant sheet. Imagine, there's this giant and it's like a zoo on this sheet. But it's not just of the select animals he could eat, but also, more shocking, the kinds of animals he's been forbidden to eat his entire life. Crabs would have been crawling on the sheep. Every farm animal imagined. Babe, Charlotte, web, piggy, whatever that pig's name was. Birds of prey, reptiles, slithering, even insects would have been on this. And as Peter sees this Jumanji-style buffet, the voice tells him, chow down. It's unfolding before him. And it says, get out your folk. Everything, Peter, that you once shunned, eat it up. I was thinking, what is your guttural re- like reaction when God wants you or God wants us to do something that goes against every grain of our body? When the voice says sell it, when the voice says leave it, move it, give it, deny it, become it. What is your reaction? Is there anybody here tonight where perhaps there's something that God is inviting you to do, but it is completely out of your control or comfort? I talk with people all the time, I know Pastor Lorenzo probably does as well, who know they need to do something that is right and from God, but the only thing keeping them back is their own degree of control and comfort. For Peter, God is doing a very, very, very new thing that he has no control over and zero comfort in. God wants Peter to do something that Peter does not want to do. God wants Peter to become something that Peter has never been. And you guys want to know what Peter's reaction was? He says, you got it! Squid sandwiches all around. Eagle pasta for everybody. No, what's he say? Look at verse 14. Look at Peter's reaction. By no means. God of the universe, by no means. Creator of everything. Nope. There must have been countless times in my life, and I'm sure will, that I have said the words to God by no means. Christians, I believe, I really truly believe it's most evident. evident, uh, Evident in these times, in these breaking points where we come to the end of ourselves that then the truest form of transformation takes place. When we come to the end of our control, the end of our comfort, the end of our traditions, the end of our plans and abilities, then growth and formation are born. Some of them, I'm assuming, have got to relate with me that we all want transformation. Yeah, we're pro-transformation but rarely do we want to be put in the process of transformation. We all want faith that transforms us, but rarely do we want a God that takes us to those places. We all want community, but rarely do we want to let people in or put ourselves out there or make time. We all want church Christians, right? But rarely will some of us do anything to serve or support that church. We all want to be discipled, but rarely do we want to disciple. We all want to live on mission, but rarely do we want to befriend our neighbor. See, those moments and events like Peter's are invaluable for growth. We are watching the final moments of Peter's entire whole metamorphosis as he leaves the cocoon and as he realizes God's plan for his life affects all of life. See, at this time, Peter would have been, according to what one pastor and commentator says, Peter would have had deep-seated racial intolerance. Thus, the reason the vision had to be repeated, what did verse 16 say? This happened three times, (laughs) and then it was taken up to heaven. Because I'm assuming every time, Peter's like, nah. Mm -mm. Rise and kill and eat. Nah. And by the third time, look what happens. Verse 17. And Peter then was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he has had seen might mean, they had seen might actually mean for his life. Peter just sat there perplexed. And friends, as I read that this week, I was so unbelievably comforted. How comforting is this? How many times have we sat perplexed at the intentions and the directions of God our Father? Why don't I have this job yet? Why am I not married yet? Why hasn't it started yet? Why haven't we left yet? Perplexed. I'm perplexed. God, I'm perplexed. And sometimes we read these stories and we forget that these patriarchal spiritual giants often were perplexed and they pushed back and they resisted and they struggled with the intentions and directions of God. They too were in great need of interior life Transformation. See, even the natural born enemies, Peter and Cornelius, both needed it. And as each have had their own preparation and their separate visions, God's ready to bridge that chasm. Look at verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry of, for Simon's house, stood at the gate And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright, God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to this house and to hear what you might have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. And let's just stop there. Having Gentiles enter Simon's house... It's not even Peter's house. Is this nice, small indication of Peter's changing heart, but the real test is coming for Peter. The next day he rose and went with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and he called together his relatives and his close friends. I was thinking, as a, as a child, all the way to about high school, um, I had a deep, fiery passion for, of hatred for school. I hated, hated school. More than you will ever know how much I hated going to school. Every single day I try to get out of it. And I did every trick in the book. I'm, I was the kid, you know, like 10 to 13, who cracked, you know, cracked open cream of mushroom soup and I poured it all over the toilet and all over my mouth and said, Mom, I've been vomiting all night. She believed it every time. And every time she'd go shopping, where's all her mushroom soup? And every time... I was the kid that took the thermometer and touched it to the light bulb, and my mom would be like, your temperature's 120. (laughs) And every time, she's like, you can stay home. It's all right. But I hated going to school. I hated the way the school smelled. I hated the drive to school. But for me, the hardest part of going to school, and I'll never forget, especially high school in Prescott, Arizona, was crossing the threshold. I know that sounds stupid, but my high school had this giant, by the size of this carpet, like metal clanking threshold. And it was so noisy as you walked over it and as the door slammed. And every time I stood there, it just made this loud noise. And I knew it was just, you know, welcoming to purgatory. Like it was just well, loud and noisy. And I hated it. I was annoyed by that threshold. And I was thinking, hopefully... That gives us even just a small glimpse of what this is going to mean for Peter. It's a very small glimpse, I know, but Peter in some ways, walking into a Gentile home, every bit of flesh and every bone in Peter's body is screaming as he approaches that threshold, like I did going to high school. Every bone in his body is screaming, you are about to be defiled, Every inch on his body as he approaches that threshold of Cornelius' home is screaming, you are about to break every law. Every inch of his body was cringing. You are about to become unclean. The minute you walk in, the minute you cross that threshold, there is no going back. It reminds me of Andrew Lloyd Webber's masterpiece, one of my favorite Art pieces of all time. The Phantom of the Opera, where the phantom sings past the point of no return, no backward glances, past all thought of if or when, no use resisting Peter. abandon thought and let the dream descend past the point of no return, the final threshold beyond the point of no return. Those are the words of the phantom that I thought were extremely fitting for Peter. Because look at verse 25. Behold the final threshold for Peter. Verse 25, look at those three words. When Peter entered. When Peter walked across the final threshold, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I too am just a guy, I'm a man. And as he talked with him, he went out and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, listen to this. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. See, Acts chapter 10 is a conversion story, right? But it's more about the conversion of Peter than it is Cornelius. See, by Peter crossing this threshold, a conversion happens in the deepest chambers of his heart where all z- zones and, and barriers and peepholes and walls are mutilated. Peter is no longer perplexed, clearly. Peter sees the symbolism of the sheet and how it applies to any and all people. He just applied it. That Jesus is a hero and a savior and a rescuer for Everybody for all nations, for all cultures, tribes, tongues. Peter in this moment has turned the page in his own heart. Peter has come out of sleeping and he sees God's plan vividly and correctly and beautifully. But even though Peter has a revelation, he is still confused. Look at verse 29. So when I was sent for, I came in without objection. I asked then why you have sent for me? Why am I here? This is a great question. This is a great question we should be asking ourselves. Why in the world is Peter there? Get this. This is epic. Couldn't the angel just have heralded the preaching or done the preaching? Couldn't the angel have done it? Cornelius is such low-hanging fruit. He's ready to fall down and worship anything that walks in the door. Cornelius and his loved ones are so ready to believe at this point all the angel had to do was hand him a track or a WWJD bracelet and they would have been like oh we're saved so why is Peter there? what is Peter doing there? well it's quite inspiring actually that the angel doesn't preach the good news of Jesus or that there simply isn't some vision or that there's no simple just track being handed why? Because that privilege has been entrusted to man. It's beautiful. Let me say it another way. Why don't angels come down and why doesn't God just give visions to your unbelieving neighbors? Because the privilege has been entrusted to you. And you, and you, and me. Have you ever considered the implications of where you live and work, play and dwell as have been divinely placed there, divinely called to do unto those what Peter has done with Cornelius? To cross the threshold into their lives, to associate with them, to accept them for who they are, not what they should be. This privilege belongs to us. This responsibility belongs to you and to I. Is there any other responsibility more urgent and more dire than this? Jesus doesn't seem to think so. Jesus summed up the goals of every prophecy and every Bible verse by simply just saying this. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. To love your neighbor as yourself. That's including neighbors who don't look like us, act like us, think like us, believe like us, have the same political views as us. Collective Church, we desire to be a West Side community that doesn't categorize or label, but wildly loves our neighbor. Acts chapter 10 exhorts us to be diverse in our love, making every onlooker scratch their head and wonder. To look at our neighborhood dinners and be like, what? I heard a pastor recently say, and I loved it. He says, we are to live questionable lives. We are to live questionable lives. And at first I was like, well, that doesn't sound right. And then I was like, oh, I get it. (laughs) To make people look and go, what is going on? People wondering why in the world our homes and dining room tables are filled with poor and rich, young and old. This nationality, this nationality, cannibal. Corpse music lovers and Taylor Swift music lovers, freaks and geeks, singles and married, widows and students, heterosexuals, homosexuals, USC, UCLA, Trump supporters and Hillary supporters. If I've made anybody uncomfortable with that list, we're getting it. We're starting to finally get it. That's the same uncomfortability, uncomfort that Peter was feeling. to love our neighbors despite if we like them or agree with them or not. Now, Christians, this is a great intention to have. But the Bible says it is only possible through Christ. Paul, who was once Saul, the persecutor who we've spent many weeks on, says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And get this, this is going to melt your face, but now... In Christ Jesus, you were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both of us one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Those two words, brought near, rattle my world. I want to get it tattooed all over my face. It rattles my world. So let me add flesh on this for a moment. You see, much like how Peter crossed the threshold, God, too, crossed the threshold in his son, Jesus. God came in Christ and associated with us. Ate a meal with us. I love the way my boy Eugene Peterson says it. God moved into the neighborhood. And he comes in the neighborhood and says, I don't know, I am yours and you are mine. And God, despite who we are, and the Bible says that we are sinners and we are wretched, despite it, God trespasses over our imperfections, our fractures and failures, our hate and our intolerance, our injustice and our prejudice, and he enters in. He crosses the threshold. You see, there was a dividing wall of hostility between the Jewish camps and the the Gentile camps, yes, but also between God and man, there is a dividing wall. If you are here and not a follower of Christ, hear me out. There is great hostility with you and God, the creator of heavens and earth, as there was for all of us. We built that wall. We, man, built that wall with our blatant rejection of God. Pushing God away, hiding from God, avoiding God, cursing God. Our anti-God nature, our sinful nature is a dividing wall. And God wanted to knock it down. And he did so by using the wrecking ball that is Jesus Christ. It is God coming to seek and to save and to serve us. It is a full-blown rescue mission. Now maybe you're asking how. I think that's good. Ask as many questions as you can. Why and how? How in the world did this wall get knocked down? Jesus came, let me tell you how. Jesus came without sin and he declared himself to be God. God. Declared himself to be God, which is why he was ultimately put to death. And it says that we are saved, we are brought near through that death. So Jesus takes upon himself all of that sin and wretchedness and anti God nature and all that gross defilement. He takes it on himself. Then he takes the penalty for it, which was death. And it shows us that Christ killed hostility between us and God by dying in our place. Again, brought near. The barrier of sin has been removed and now God dwells with us. Now, if you've noticed, this is so important. If you've noticed these last few, however many weeks, the book of Acts has been like a grinder to a very specific set or framework or understanding or mindset. It has been a grinder to a specific people group or to a person. And that being, to that people group, that being to those who are good. Acts is grinding those who are simply, no, we're we're good. We're good people. To those who are religious, to those who are devout, much like Cornelius. We've been seeing with each passing chapter in Acts, that mindset is shredded. Just as we see tonight, Cornelius is what? He's a generous man, it says. He's a praying man. He's a devout man. He's a family man. He's a good man. And not one of those attributes will save his soul. Not one of those will knock down a wall of hostility between him and God. I hope we see by the end of Acts, and I hope we see by the end of tonight that being good is not the answer. Bear with me for a moment, and let me say it as bluntly, as sharply that I possibly can. Hell is filled with good people. Because our eternal destiny and our acceptance with God is not based upon our actions, but upon Christ's actions. Cornelius and his loved ones didn't need another Bible study. Cornelius and his loved ones don't need another potluck. They don't need to watch another Kirk Cameron movie or here's a Thomas Kincaid painting. They don't need any more of that. What they needed to do was hear and receive what I just told you about Jesus Christ tonight, we as a community of God's people extend that same invitation to you to receive Christ if you are not following him. That Cornelius, the very same invitation that Cornelius was offered oh so long ago. And with that, and with that, maybe you're saying, well, yeah, but Cornelius had angels. Cornelius had visions. He had an apostle knocking on his doorstep. If I could have an ounce of that, an ounce of that, then I too would believe in Jesus forever. Let me just remind you, as a friend, that one of those things saved him. Not one of those things heralded the good news of Jesus that you have heard tonight. It was only Peter's message about Jesus. That is why Cornelius called Peter to his house to hear all that you have been commanded to say, Peter, by the Lord. Look at verse 30. Check this out. Cornelius said four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. Behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon at Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. The sobering beauty of these verses is to precisely that God has embraced all through the saving and transforming work of Jesus. Thus, we embrace all. There's no longer them or us or Jewish or Gentile. Listen to Paul again one more time. For in Christ you you all are sons through faith. For as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That's pretty great stuff. Some theologians want to sum it up as, this is a new humanity. What we're seeing, if you're neither this and you're neither this, then Jesus has created a new humanity. We identify it as, yeah, it's a new identity. It's an entirely new identity. This identity says that there's no longer Gentile or Jewish. It is Christ reconciled everybody as a new man, as a new woman. It's this thing right here called family. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we believe this is what ultimately defines us. It's this that gives us our dignity and value. It's the image and likeness of God inside of us that was redeemed by Christ. That is our deepest identity and our truest self. An identity, hear me out, where there's, not, there's no one, no nationality, no skin color untouchable, God, untouchable by God, thus not untouchable by us. There is no one, no culture, no preference, no lifestyle that is uninvited by God, thus not uninvited by us. This new identity is calling us to something far bigger, higher, deeper, and transcendent. To love everybody, even those you hate the most. The ones that you maybe, perhaps, have the most hostility with. To not be selective, or possess favorites, or not to be partial with our love. See, Jesus is challenging you and I to extend divine love to those we find most Mm -hmm. difficult To love, to even like. I mean, that's the great commandment, right? Jesus is calling you and I to love like he loves. Amen? Pray with me.